Here on Palmetto Family Matters Podcast, we've been joined by some incredible guests, whether it's Congressman Ralph Mormon or Abby Johnson and what she's doing to fight for life. Uh, today's guest is no different. He's an incredible man. And let me just say this for those that are listening. He's an incredible man of God. We're so blessed to have David Barton, founder of Wall Builders, today on Palmetto Family Matters Podcast. He founded Wall Builders several years back. It's a national pro-life organization which makes sure that constitutional heritage and America's history is preserved from a Christian perspective and a biblical worldview. So uh, thanks for joining us, David. I I know you'll probably want to tell us a little bit about wall builders, what y'all are up to, and uh, tell us a little bit about um, what y'all have done to make sure uh, American history is preserved from a biblical perspective. Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, American history we don't necessarily have to make sure it's preserved from a bu- biblical perspective because that's just what American history is. And it, that's one of the few things that I, that I think people know today is how uniquely religious and biblical it was in so many areas. Um, I mean, folks don't know that, but that's documented even in what we call the academic world. It's striking to me that when you look at America, who is so unique uh, we as a nation, we've had 234 birthdays under our constitution and the average length of a constitution for the rest of the world has been 17 years. So while all these other nations are, are flipping and turning governments on a regular basis, we've got one, we've been stable and we just don't really even understand or appreciate how different we are from other nations. But it has caused political science professors who look at the world to say, why is America different? And it's interesting, there was a really big study that came out of the University of Houston where they went back and collected 15,000 writings in the founding era. They said, let's just see who the founding fathers quoted because then that'll tell us where they got their ideas. And so they went through and went through those 15,000 works. They found 3,154 direct quotes from the founders and they tracked every quote back to its original source. It took them 10 years, but they got it done. And at the end of 10 years, they discovered that the single most cited work by the founders was the Bible. 34% of all their political quotes came out of the Bible. The next closest source was uh, Baron Charles Montesquieu at a little over 12%. And then you had uh, Judge William Blackstone, 11%. And then you had John Locke at 3%. Those are the next three most cited sources. So four times more than the top two sources, the Bible was the number one source. So that says a lot about the political founding of America, that the Bible was that important in political founding. And yet most Americans today really know only a secular history, if at all. Uh, They know very little about what's been done in our history from a Bible standpoint. So it's interesting that you would say from that biblical standpoint, because it actually is authentic history. It's not something we have to try to add or, or something to add in. It's just that we as as Americans really don't even know our own history well enough to know that that is the right perspective to have when looking at American history. Speaking of understanding history, I think it's important for those listening right now to know a little bit of your background and um, exactly, you're going to give the number, exactly how many pieces of American history you and wall builders actually own. Well, the last last count we had was somewhere around 160,000. And so just about any era you want to choose, whether it's from Columbus to World War II to the space race, uh, back up to the American War for Independence, whether it's going to be the Civil War, you name it. And we're going to have authentic documents, writings, um, artifacts from that era and that period. 
So we have one of the largest private collections, certainly in America. Now, obviously, we're, we're outnumbered by, by things like the National Archives and Smithsonian. But as far as any kind of private collection, uh, it's, it's one of the largest in the nation. That's incredible. So when it comes to source documentation and things like that, y'all are uh, y'all's collection in some ways, as far as a private collection is unparalleled uh, when it comes to actually understanding what those sources are. I believe you said you guys own 12 presidential Bibles. Yeah, I'm, I'm not even sure anymore how many we do own. We have so many and, and the same with Bibles of founding fathers and, and Bibles of other important people, Susan B. Anthony, her Bible, et cetera. So we have a very large collection of Bibles. And, and it's just, you know, it's kind of unique to, to be able to go to original sources. And I will tell you that, that for me, with this massive collection that we've, that we've now amassed, this was nothing I ever intended because as I went through high school and college, history was the course I hated the most. And I, I stayed completely away from history. And I just, I did not like it. Uh, my history teachers helped do that. I, you know, nobody's seeing this, but I've got white hair. So I go back a few years. <laughs> And I went to school in the 50s and the 60s. And so let's let's think about going back that many generations. And I remember my sixth grade history teacher told me that George Washington had 26 illegitimate children, giving new meaning to the phrase Washington slept here. Now, if that's what you're getting in elementary school back in the 50s and 60s, uh, I, I had no interest in that kind of history. It's just, you know, if that's who our heroes are, I'm not real interested in them. And it was that way in elementary school and junior high and high school and college, et cetera. And what changed me was after I was long out, I, now math and science was my gig. I wasn't into history, but I was into math and science. And so I'd become a school principal and I was teaching math and science and coaching basketball. And I actually came across two really old documents that I had been taught about in school, except I got my hands on the originals. And when I read the originals, they were totally opposite from what I had been taught about in school. And you know, one of those was, hey, the founding fathers were, were atheists, agnostics, deists. They, they didn't want religion in public, separation church and state. That's what they gave us, that's what they wanted. And then I found this original Supreme Court decision where that it was unanimous decision that if there's going to be a government funded school, it was going to teach the Bible in schools. We were not gonna have a government funded school that didn't teach the Bible. And that decision was rendered by people put on the courts by the signers of the Constitution. And they actually cited signers of the Constitution in support of, of their ruling. And the signers of the Constitution, they, they cited, I'd never heard. You know, as it turns out, there are 55 who wrote the Constitution, 39 who signed it. I might have been able to name maybe Madison and maybe Washington and maybe Franklin at, at the most. Um, so three out of, out of the 55. And there were just so much that I found I didn't know. So that one on, on having the Bible and, and public schools was brand new to me. And then being taught that Washington was so immoral and, and such an atheist agnostic deist. And I got my hands on his original 1796 farewell address where he said, look, the only things that, that make the country strong are religion and morality. And anybody who tries to undermine that, you, you can't consider yourself a patriot. You're, you're not a real lover of the country if you hate the things that made us great, which is religion and morality. Now, wait a minute, that, that's exactly opposite of what I was told about this guy. And that's where we started collecting. And the more we've collected, the more we see just how bad our history has become over recent decades. Although 
probably until about the 1940s, you would have got a real dose of American history. Uh, we can definitely tell that it started changing around Woodrow Wilson uh, with, with the book that he did back in 1902 on the history of the American people. He basically just gutted history. He specifically took black history out. Uh, and, and so we just don't even know our black heroes anymore, much less the rest of history, but that's how twisted history became. And so it's kind of ironic that, that, that here I am as a math and science guy by background, and we now have one of the largest collections of history in America. And so that has certainly been uh, the area where I've immersed myself the last several decades is knowing and correcting American history, going back to original documents. I do think truth is important. Uh, truth is more important than anybody's agenda. And so that's what we try to do is find the truth, the good, the bad, the ugly about America from original documents. Wow. So the first big takeaway from what you've already told us, I think, is that it's never too late to establish a foundation of truth. And there's this aggressive push toward the secularization of American history. I think we can thank Howard Zinn in large part for that and his people's history of the United States. I know you've mentioned that in some of your talks uh, when it comes to CRT and cultural Marxism, things like that. Uh, but, you know, at Palmetto Family and the Palmetto Family Matters podcast, where we're shaping South Carolina from a biblical worldview, I think it's important for us to focus on that biblical worldview and teach, as you just mentioned, all of history. I mean, most people listening to this probably didn't know that Susan B. Anthony even owned a Bible, let alone that you now have her Bible. And that's extremely fascinating. But I love that you just talked about um, the erasing of black history in America. And this February being Black History Month, um, Woodrow Wilson had a large part in destroying Black history in America, basically erasing it. And uh, talk to us a little bit more about American history being Black history and Black history being American history and what we should know about that. Yeah, our, our view of Black history has been much shaped by progressives and progressives were very ardent racists. Uh, the progressive move started really back in the 18, late 1800s. Uh, Darwin was the progressive, and then Woodrow Wilson comes along, and, and he institutes what, what he calls social Darwinism. And a lot of that was, was just flat racist. Uh, when Darwin did The Origin of Species in 1859, most people have never paid attention to the cover on the book because it's been edited since the time he wrote it. Uh, we have an original one of those back from that day, and it is called the origin of species or the preservation of favored races in the struggle for life. Now, notice the subtitle, the preservation of favored races. Oh, some races are favored more than others. And he, at that point, covered the fact that, yes, the darker your skin, the less evolved you are. Now, he primarily in his book on, on evolution was looking at the evolution of general species. He came back later and wrote a second book called The Descent of Man. And the descent of man, he said, now look, when I looked at all the other species, I, now I'm just going to focus on man. And there's about eight times in that book where he says, the darker your skin, the less evolved you are. And he points out that it, what we really need to be doing as public policy is having dark skinned people, blacks go back to Africa and they can stay there in Europe and, and Africa until their, their skin turns white and then they can come join us in America. So that is what he puts out as a scientific view. It's kind of like follow the science. Well, that's what, that's what progressives love to do. And the science they follow repeatedly shows itself to be wrong. So they, they're following the science. And so they come up with this institutional racism. 
And literally, uh, you, you have Woodrow Wilson, who becomes this just ardent racist. At that point in time, he starts promoting eugenics laws and eugenics laws favored race. Uh, the darker your skin, the less we needed you in America. And so we're going to do involuntary sterilizations. I think 32 states got into involuntary sterilizations, uh, trying to wipe out inferior races, keep them from reproducing. Uh, Hitler, in his book, Mein Kampf, in 1925, actually cited America as the source of the idea that there are, there are superior races. And then he took that to a new level. But it's interesting. He cited American eugenicists as, as the purpose. And uh, we had a number of American eugenicists who traveled back and forth to Germany, helping them set up their eugenics programs. And some of them were actually given special uh, special awards by German universities for what they called the science of racial cleansing. So this is Woodrow Wilson. And Woodrow Wilson comes out with this book on the history of the American people, a five-volume set. At that point, he had been professor at three universities. So everybody says, man, this guy's got to be the most brilliant guy out there. And on top of that, he's a progressive. He is so smart. And when he came out with that book, he did not put a single black person in the book at all. Now, you cannot do American history without the history of, of black folks. It's just impossible. You can't go through the American Revolution. You know, even if you look at the American Revolution, back in those days when there was no camera, if you got a painting done of you, you're a really significant dude. I mean, whether it be George Washington or John Adams or anybody else. But if I start naming all the black individuals who have significant paintings of them, particularly war paintings and action paintings, uh, how involved blacks were in, in, in securing American independence, it would shock people today. We, we've never heard of, you know, the Jack Sissoms or the Peter Salems or the Prince Whipples, or we've never heard of Oliver Cromwell or Prince Estabrook or Billy Flora or all these other names I could go through where we have these, these pictures and, and know a lot about them. And that's because Woodrow Wilson took this out. So we really do suffer today from a lack of knowledge of our own history, which certainly has affected our policy. Um, the reason we're having CRT taught in schools and people buy it is because they don't know our history because CRT is institutional racism. We've always eliminated blacks. No, we haven't. Progressive have always eliminated blacks. You go back in American history, I can show you history books from the 1850s that have more than 100 black heroes, not soldiers, 100 black heroes from the American Revolution. And you also find that at that point in time, every single unit in the American War for Independence was an integrated unit. And you also find that black soldiers on average served nine times longer than white soldiers. Everybody was a volunteer. Everybody enli enlisted and reenlisted on their own. And, and you have whites voluntarily reenlisting nine times more often or nine times longer than whites do. And there's, you just can't tell the American war for independence story without the role of blacks. And yet Woodrow Wilson managed to completely eliminate them. And we've been stuck with that history since about 1902. You're absolutely right. In fact, uh, my son brought home, um, he's in the fourth grade, he brought home a project for Black History Month. And I, I think it's important for us to celebrate all, all parts of our history as a nation. But the, the sad part of this is, and I'm just going to throw out three names that he mentioned, or they, he and my other son, who's in the second grade, mentioned. Of course, my son is a lover of baseball, so he's doing his project on Jackie Robinson, who significant character in American history broke the color barrier in baseball. That's a big deal. But then they threw out two other names, uh, Thurgood Marshall, the first uh, black Supreme Court justice, and then Malcolm X. Uh, and, and Malcolm X, as they told me, uh, my son's uh, told me Malcolm X is a preacher. 
Uh, now, you, you do with that what you want, uh, but that's kind of the sum of the stuff they're being taught. None of the names that you just mentioned, they, they would have a clue about from their school. So I think it's important for us to understand as people even here in the Palmetto State that much, much, so much of our history as a nation is not being taught. And as you just said, Woodrow Wilson just completely erased centuries of our history uh, as Americans, not just white history, but American history. Black history is American history. Tell us a few stories about some of these men and women that we have forgotten because of the progressive agenda and secularism of American history. Well, you know, first thing I'd point out on, on what you've said is that notice that the individuals that we look at as black heroes are all after 1902. It's like we don't know of anything before 1902. And Malcolm X, ah, yeah, okay, that is a significant figure, but he's a counterculture figure, and he represented a different strand from what you would have with Martin Luther King. Uh, it's interesting. One of the things we own is Martin Luther King, the Birmingham, um, the Birmingham racial reconciliation movement. You know what happened in Birmingham, and and that's where Dr. King did so much of his stuff. We actually have the Ten Commandments that you had to sign to be part of that movement. It was called the Nonviolent Movement of of Birmingham. And to be part of that and, and to go with what he did in Washington, D.C., the March on Washington, et cetera, uh, there was a pledge card you had to sign. And it was exactly the opposite of Malcolm X. And it started with the Ten Commandments. And the first of the Ten Commandments said that to be a, a part of this movement, you have to meditate daily on the teachings and life of Jesus. The second thing you had to do to be part of the movement was you had to remember that the race and reconciliation movement did not seem did not seek victory it sought reconciliation and justice and, and so it's a whole different thing malcolm x comes in and says it's violence we need violence we need to overthrow this stuff it's exactly opposite to the civil rights movement that won malcolm x did not win but because he is marxist and because that's that's where the they're trying to head the nation today let, let's throw in all the guys that were uh, really on the periphery. And it's not that Malcolm X wasn't an important figure. He was, but he was just rejected even by most blacks. And so the, the, the race, the, the movement that won was Dr. King's movement. And that's the one that they're not even talking about. So it's interesting even to see the choice of 20th century figures. And usually it's going to be Dr. King and Rosa Parks and, you know, Jackie Robinson. And those are all great figures, but go back and, and let, let me just take the, the very, uh, last battle of the American War for Independence. The, the reason that we won became an independent nation was we won the battle at Yorktown. The reason we won the battle at Yorktown, you have to go back about a year earlier, and there was a siege on Richmond. The siege on Richmond was led by a guy named Benedict Arnold, who had been an American general, became a traitor, tried to kill Washington, tried to have Washington sold out and killed or captured, and so he becomes a British general. Well, he comes into Richmond and destroys Richmond. And one of those who watched that destruction was a black slave named James Armistead. And James Armistead went to his master and said, look, this is wrong. I've got to do something to try to save the country. Will you let me go fight? And he said, of course. And, and let me point out that this sounds strange from the beginning, but in Virginia, you need to know that the founding fathers for Virginia, Thomas Jefferson and George Washington and George Mason and, and so many others were very strong anti-slavery individuals who owned slaves, which seems oxymoronic. 
Um, but it's kind of what Jefferson said it really well. He said, the, the laws will not allow me to free my slaves. We have the case of a guy named uh, Carter, uh, Robert Carter. He became a Christian in 1791 through the Great Awakening. A Methodist missionary rode across his plantation, preached the gospel. He got saved. He had 700 slaves. He freed all of his slaves. So we're talking 1791. 70 years later, those slaves still were not freed because of Virginia laws. So he frees his own slaves and it doesn't do anything at all. Same with so many of the founding fathers in Virginia. Uh, they did not want slavery. They fought against it. George Washington signed two federal anti-slavery laws. Jefferson signed the law that made America the first nation in the world to ban the, the slave trade. We ended the African slave trade in 1807. Uh, that's before any other nation. He, he signed that law in March of 1807. So, I mean, these are guys who, who did a lot to, to fight slavery. And Jefferson actually uh, did so much to help end slavery and, and fight slavery in France and in other places as well. He just hated slavery. But he stuck with he inherited slaves, Washington inherited slaves, and they're not allowed to release their slaves. And most people, they just don't understand that. And it's like, you know, I, I don't like abortion but we have abortion in the state of Texas. Does that mean I'm pro-abortion because we have abortion? No, it doesn't. So having said that, what you have is the, the master of James Armistead really didn't, didn't want the, the slavery stuff. And he said, yes, go fight for freedom. Absolutely, bro. And so James goes and, and he gets into camp and he becomes very good friends with, with Lafayette, um, the, the young 19-year-old French general, Marquis de Lafayette. And he says, what can I do to help? I want to do anything I can to help defeat the British. And I've seen what they did to Richmond and this is my home and, and tell me what I can do to help. And they get to talking, they become good friends. And Lafayette says, you know, George Washington has just tasked me to find intelligence on the enemy because we really don't know what they do until they show up and do it. I mean, we have ambushes waiting for us and we didn't know they were there and we walk right into them and, and we just don't even know where the British are. So we need better intelligence. And he's asked me to do that. And James said, well, I want to do that. I want to, I want to help you. I want to do that. And he said, well, it's, you know, it's really dangerous. If you get caught, it is death penalty. He said, yeah, that's, that's fine. I want to do it. So what happens is James goes into the British camp pretending to be an escaped slave. He said, oh, I hate the Americans. They're, they're so mistreatment, so bad, so terrible. Will you kind British please take me in? They say, sure. And so he begins faithfully serving in the camp. He does everything he can to, to help the, the soldiers. And, and you need water. You need me to get something for you. And he does such a good job that one of the generals comes to him and says, man, you serve so good. You ought to be serving the officers, not the, not the soldiers. Come into my tent and be my aide. And so James Armistead gets promoted to being an aide to a general. And the general he becomes an aide to is actually Benedict Arnold, the guy who attacked Richmond that he so wants to take down. So he is now the military aide to the British general, which means he attends all the meetings of the general's. And Lord Cornwallis is the, the commander in chief. So he's in all these meetings and he starts getting information back to Lafayette who gets it to Washington. And, and suddenly what happens is the, the British are not, their, their plans aren't working right. They have an ambush laid and suddenly the Americans don't show up where they're supposed to be and things just aren't going well. And so it, it ends up that Benedict Arnold gets shipped out to another front to fight battles there. And, and the commander in chief, Lord Cornwallis says to, to James Armistead, he said, Hey, why don't you come serve me, be my military aide. And he says, yeah, I'll be happy to. So now he's with the commander in chief and the commander in chief takes him aside and says, you know, this is a really bad deal, but I've got a spy somewhere in the camp. And, you know, James is looking right at him. He's a spy. 
but he, but Cornwallis doesn't know that. He said, I know you hate the Americans, but would you be willing to go back and spy on the Americans for me and tell me who the spy is in my camp, find out who that is, because it's costing us all sorts of, of stuff, battles. And so James says, well, I hate the Americans, but I'll do it for you. So you end up with James Armistead being the first double spy in the American Revolution. And he is the one who told Lafayette and Washington that Cornwallis was march marching to Yorktown. And if you get down there and wait for him, you can probably capture him in the, in the war. And that's exactly what happened. So the reason we end the American War for Independence is we laid a trap for uh, Cornwallis like he'd been laying for us. And we capture him down there. And so you, here you've got the guy responsible for ending the war for independence as a black hero, the first double spy in the American Revolution. Uh, and Lafayette, I mean, he, he jumped all over the Virginia legislature because James Armistead, he should have been freed, but they didn't free him and the legislature didn't. And, and his masters absolutely wanted to free him, but the legislature wouldn't let him free him. So Lafayette really went in and kind of chewed out the legislature. How dare you keep this guy? He, you wouldn't be free without this guy. Okay, we'll let him go. That's how, that's how bad Virginia legislature was at the time. But you, you got a hero like that. And John Adams specifically said that the American War for Independence began with the first blood shed at King Street. If you go back to King Street, that's the, that, that is the Boston Massacre. And the first blood there was included Crispus Attucks, a black patriot. So it's interesting. The American Revolution starts with a black patriot. It ends with a black patriot. You can't tell the story of American independence without telling the black patriots. And yet we do. Uh, one other story I'd throw in was it's really the birth of special forces in 1777, 1778, the second in command of the British uh, of the American army was captured. And that second in command was General Charles Lee. And the only way you get your second in command back is you have to capture their second in command and have a, a prisoner exchange. And their second in command uh, was General Richard Prescott, British general. And he's sitting on the island in the middle of the harbor and in Rhode Island, uh, surrounded by the British Navy, and he's in the middle of this big fort. And so there's just no way you're going to get to him, except Colonel William Barton of Rhode Island came up with the plan. So I've got this daring plan. It might work. He said, but it's probably going to get us all killed. He brought his guys together and said, look, this is so dangerous. I only want volunteers. I think I've got a way we might be able to capture the general and have this prisoner exchange but it's only going to be volunteers. Well, 20 black guys volunteered and 20 white guys volunteered. And by the way, the first Rhode Island regiment was never defeated, and it was a regiment of 400 black soldiers. Uh, they took on the top British uh, battalions and whipped them, and whipped them strong. Uh, it was so bad that the British officer told his commander, don't send me back against those guys, because if I do, my guys will kill me. And so that's the first Rhode Island regiment. But nonetheless, you had 20 black guys and 20 white guys that volunteered. And one of the black guys right up front was a guy named Jack Sisson. And so as they set out on this mission, he jumps in the first boat. He's up leading this thing. He's just at the very front. And what they have to do is they have to row their rowboats under the British Navy, under the oars of the British Navy, and get to the island in the middle of the British Navy there in Rhode Island. And so they do it about two o'clock in the morning. They put what they called mufflers on their oars. They wrapped rags around the end of their oars. So as they went through the water, you couldn't hear them. It was a dark night. They went right into the British Navy, the British Navy sleeping. When they get shore, they knock out the guards there at the, at the fort. And then they find where that the general is, is barricaded in a room. And it's got a big oak bar on the back side of the door. It's got wrought iron hinges. And they can't get in and they say, man, if we have to beat this down with, with hammers, everybody's going to wake up and we'll all be dead. And Jack Sisson said, you guys get out of my way. 
and, and he backed up and went down the hall with his head and shoulders, went right through the oak door, popped the hinges off, busted the, the wood on the inside. As he got into General Prescott's quarters, General Prescott set up in bed and said, what's this? And he, he took open hand and slapped him so hard on the head, it knocked him out. He picked him up, put him under his arm. He walked out with the general. He got back in the boat. They rode back to safety, and then they had the prisoner exchange. Jack Sisson is the hero of that thing. This is, this is special forces, your first special forces group that we've got, really. And, and here's this black hero at the head of it. So there, there are so many stories like that that every single American would love knowing. And I don't even like calling it black history. It's just American history. It just happened to involve black folks, just like American history happens to involve white folks. And the American Revolution involved many Hispanic. But I mean, the ladies of Cuba were taking up contributions they sent to George Washington to keep the American army in the field. And you had so many, you had so many Hispanic patriots and, and Jewish patriots and everything. This, this is just American history until you get to Woodrow Wilson, who's a racist and just eradicates everybody except the white guys. And that's just not the way it's supposed to be. So we, uh, we had you in town for, or actually in the state for a seven stop tour and saw over 2,700 people in those seven stops. Uh, but one of the most impactful was one where you gave uh, a talk very similar to this in front of uh, several of our legislators. And uh, we had two of our interns, our Palmetto Family Council interns there, and they're both uh, seniors in high school. And uh, if they, they were blown away. They had never heard of James Armistead, Crispus Attucks, or Jack Sisson. They had never heard of any of these people. And my sons, uh, who are 10, 8, and 4, will most likely never hear of these men or any other heroes pre-1902 who are Black from the public school system. And that is significant. Because ultimately what it's doing, once again, through Woodrow Wilson and the progressive movement is intentionally leaving out huge swaths, giant swaths, erasing that from our history. And it's important for us to understand that ultimately because, David, as you well know, and, and you've spoken so clearly to this, we are intentionally being divided through cultural Marxism, critical theory, and multiple iterations of critical theory have been tried, but the one that seems to have stuck the most, um, at least for the se last several decades, is critical race theory. So with all of this being intentional, what can those that are listening right now do in order to combat or uh, push back on cultural Marxism and critical race theory? You have to relearn history. And one of the things that we do is we write about history, but we write about it out of the original documents. Um, we just came out with a book called The American Story, which really covers from Columbus uh, through, through the end of slavery, through the Constitutional Convention, and then a little bit of Lincoln and, and the end of slavery. But we cover a lot of these black heroes that are unknown today. We cover a lot of the women who played such a key role of the Hispanics, of the Jews, of the others. And that's, that's the way we should know American history, but we don't. And you have, really have to go back. Um, it, it's unfortunate, but there's very few academic writers today that actually go back to the original documents. They usually quote each other rather than documents. Uh, Mark David Hall out of George Fox University in Oregon is a great guy on original documents, as is Dan Dreisbach, American University. 
but these guys are the exceptions. There's just not many that go back. And by writing out of the originals, you're really challenging the, the, the stuff we've done for a hundred years. And it's like, well, you guys are all dissidents. No, we're actually taking you back to the truth. It's like Josiah, when they rediscovered the scroll of the temple, they were very religious. They were Jews. They were doing all the stuff they thought they were supposed to. And then they found the original scrolls and they go, oh my gosh, this is what we're supposed to be doing. We didn't know this. And so it led to a revival, simply going back to original documents. And so what happened with Josiah is really what needs to happen in America. Uh, there's one of the things we do at wall builders is we just, we make sure that we put as many materials out. We have literally hundreds of items in our catalog that are all original sources. There's a lot of good series of biographies that have started coming out in the last 10 to 15 years that are all from original sources. And that's the way you have to go back and recover. It's like Josiah, you got to go back and read the original stuff. And when you do it, it changes the narrative. It changes policy. You know, it's unfortunate that they were paying about $182,000 a year of tax, uh, $182,000 of tax money, K through 12, to have our kids educated. And they come out not knowing much about the true American history, what actually happened, not to mention the fact that right now statistics show that about 19% of those who graduate are illiterate. So not only do we not know history, we don't even know how to read even to know history. So we're just not getting our money's worth out of public education at this point. Um, one of the things we do in the summer is we have we have trainings for 18 through 25 year olds that are going into college because we know what they're going to get in college. We know the Marxist professors, what they're going to be taught about economics, what they're going to be taught about race, what they're going to be taught about history and everything else. And, and so we really go through the apologetics of that to get kids equipped for what they're going to see in college. But in the summers, we also do teacher training. We have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds that come and hundreds on the waiting list as well. Um, just going through the original documents and, and we let them see. And when you go back and, and do your teaching, here's what you need to know. And so we, we see that. And, and so there, there's so many ways of, of being able to inoculate people against bad history. It just takes a little while to, uh, to, to, to put the time in, because this is like, like you mentioned, your three sons, what they've been asked, the three people they've been asked to research. It, it's going to take time to do that. So how do you get time to, to research the Jack Sissons or the James Armisteads or the Robert Smalls or the, the Joseph Hayne Rain, Joseph Hayne Rainey? And by the way, those are South Carolina black heroes that very few know about. I mean, how do you get time to do that? And, and that's the problem is we don't take the time to find the truth. And so that's why we kind of try to put out as many books as we can that cite to original documents so that Americans have a chance of knowing what the truth is. I love listening to your stories. Um, I, I, it's just incredible. The wealth of knowledge. Uh, it's an embarrassment of wealth. Uh, as our friend at Faith Wins, Chad Connolly says, you've forgotten more about American history since breakfast than most of us listening to this podcast have ever learned, including the guy hosting this interview. Um, tell us one more story. And, and you mentioned Robert Smalls. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, our very own South Carolinian, Robert Smalls. You know, it's interesting. If you go online and if you type in first black general, you will find Vernon Davis, Vietnam. And that's great. Uh, Vernon Davis, great general. But what you won't find is Robert Smalls, a two-star general back at the end of the Civil War. South Carolinian, Robert Smalls, he uh, was a slave. He was impressed by the Confederacy into piloting the ship called the Planter, and, and the Planter was um, a, a naval vessel. 
At that time, Charleston had been blockaded by the Union. And that's pretty common in, in all the wars. Charleston got blockaded because Charleston, it, being a large port, as stuff comes into Charleston, it's distributed all over, over the southern colonies. And so when the American War for Independence was going on, the, the British blockaded Charleston Harbor. When the War for 1812 was going on, the British blockaded Charleston Harbor. Uh, when the Civil War was going on, the Union blockaded Charleston Harbor. They didn't want anything coming or going out. So what happens is, is Robert is on this pilot ship and he, he knew the harbor really, really well. Uh, he had been he had been in the harbor for years. And so as the Confederates were laying what they called torpedoes, which we would call mines, they mined the harbor in case any any um, uh, of the Union ships came in. Robert's the guy who, who did that. He was the guy who, who knew where all the mines were, who played the mines, who guided the ships. So, but he doesn't like being in slavery. So he and his crew make plans to escape from slavery. And one day when all of the white crew on the planter went ashore for a social function, social gathering, um, the crew said, now's our time. And so they, they got their families, got them on board the planter, and they want to head out to the blockade, Union blockade, where there's freedom for them. And to do that, they have to pass a number four. It's Fort Johnson, Fort Sumter, et cetera. And the way that the ships had to pass the forts, all of them, uh, to make sure you're not a, a Union ship, you have to give hand signals to the, to the guards at the fort. You have to blow the whistle in a certain sequence, and you have to give the password. And so what happened is that as they're going by the forts, uh, you have to turn and face the guards at the forts and, and give the passwords. Well, obviously, Robert Smalls being a black guy, that's not the captain of the ship in, in the Confederacy. And so that's going to be a death problem. So what he did was he put on the captain's jacket, put on his hat, and he would talk over his shoulder and yell over his shoulder. And he actually got past all the guards, got past um, the Fort Sumter, and they're on their way out to the Union Navy. And as they are approaching the Union Navy, Union starts to open fire them because they're, they're flying a Confederate flag. And one of the guys on the ship pulls the flag down, raises a white tablecloth. Fortunately, one of the Union guys sees that just before he fires, and they let the ship come close, still under guard. Uh, and when the ship comes close, the captain boards and says, what are you doing? What are you out here? And he says, well, we have a gift for Uncle Abe. And so the planter was taken to Washington, D.C. Um, Robert Smalls and the other crew met with Abraham Lincoln. Uh, they actually convinced Abraham Lincoln, you need to let blacks fight in the Civil War. And that results in the first and the second uh, wrote first and second South Carolina regiments being formed in the Civil War. And so at that point, Congress then passes a bill that says, look, the, the way we do this is if you if you bring a, a ship in bounty ship, you get ha half the value of the ship. So Robert Smalls and these other guys each got several thousand dollars uh, for turning the ship in. But then the ship is converted to a union ship. And Robert Small says, I want to go back on it. I, I know that harbor. I can help you. I know where all the mines are. And so he gets that ship back and, and they get into battle there in Charleston. And it's a white captain. And that white captain gets really cowardly and scared. And he goes down and hides in the coal bin and says, surrender, surrender. You got to surrender. And Robert Small says, there's no way I'm going to surrender. If I surrender, I'm a dead man. I'll die in battle rather than die from surrender. And so at that point, he takes over the ship. They win the battle. Um, the commanding general for the, the Navy, uh, Quincy Adams Gilmore, then makes Robert Smalls the captain of the planter. That becomes the first black captain in naval history as Robert Smalls of South Carolina. He is then engaged in an additional 17 battles, and he's there at the surrender of Fort Sumter. 
So after that, he gets involved in politics. Uh, he is a free man now with the end of the war. He's involved in politics. He's a founder of the South Carolina Republican Party. He serves in the legislature. He's elected to five terms in the U.S. Congress. Uh, one of the first blacks elected out of the nation anywhere to Congress. And by the way, uh, also elected from South Carolina is a guy named Joseph Hayne Rainey, another black congressman from South Carolina. He was a Republican. And he becomes the first man to preside over the U.S. House of Representatives to sit in the speaker's chair. And we've never heard that before. Probably very few people in South Carolina know Joseph Hayne Rainey or Robert Small. But Robert Small goes on to, to really do remarkable things. He becomes a, a, a major general, a two-star general over the South Carolina militia. Uh, so there's just so many things to point to with so many of these guys. And by the way, I'll just also throw out a little piece of trivia. The first 190 blacks elected to office in South Carolina were all elected as Republicans. And I'll bet you there's very few South Carolina history books who mentioned the first 190 blacks elected to office. They're probably going to pick up with the 1960s and 70s. You started having Barbara Jordan elected out of Texas and Andrew Young out of Atlanta in the, in the 70s. And, and that's where most black history for elected folks begins. Um, and and it, that's just not accurate either. I mean, 100, 190 black folks elected uh, in South Carolina, but they were elected as Republicans, which is probably not going to show up in most history books. I'm a proud South Carolinian, and I had no idea that our the 190 uh, black Republicans were elected. That's that's incredible knowledge. Um, as I told you, friends who are listening, um, a significant, a significant historian, American historian, David Barton. If you can't get enough of David's stories, um, you've got to pick up American Story. Uh, it's an incredible book. We we sold out of copies on our tour across the state of South Carolina. David, tell people who are listening right now how they can listen to more of your stories, where they can find your books. That sort. Of, how can they connect with you? They can connect with us through wallbuilders.com. Uh, we have a YouTube channel where we have hundreds of short videos with tidbits from history, stories from history, biographies from history. Uh, Wallbuilders.com, you'll, you'll also find so many of the books that we offer. We have what's called the Heroes of History series, which are old biographies um, for elementary to junior high age level, uh, reading level that are great histories, probably 40 to 50 to 60 heroes that have been forgotten, including black heroes. So there's a lot of ways to connect with wall builders, any of the social media platforms we're going to be on. Uh, so people are, are welcome to join us, learn about this stuff and, and jump in and tell others about it. Wow. What an incredible interview. What an incredible set of stories. Black history equals American history. American history equals black history. What an important message for those of us listening today right here in the state of South Carolina in this February Black History Month. Thank you, David, for joining us today on Palmetto Family Matters. Miss, thank you, and thank you for all you guys do there in South Carolina. God bless you.